Welcome once again. Good to be gathered together to sit under the preaching of the word and worship together. Um, <clears throat> I was thinking this week, so a lot of times churches take kind of a break from their regular preaching schedule for the summer and do something different. A lot of people are gone and traveling and um, don't want to miss kind of the regular uh, preaching schedule that we have. Not sure if we're going to do that, but I was thinking about that this week and thinking about what might be a good thing to do. And uh, I've always wanted to preach through Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses, and it's all about the Bible. (laughs) So I thought, okay, we're Grace Bible Church. We should probably preach about the Bible at some point. I think that would be a good idea. So I was just reading through, just kind of see, could we do this in the summer? It's a long book, long chapter of the book, I'm sorry. Um, And I came across this passage that really kind of convicted me and I want you also to be convicted. So I'm, I'm going to share this with you. This is just, I was reading through 119, and this is verse 102. This is what it says. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And I was thinking about my own heart, and the way that I generally respond to things. And I'm not sure that I always let the Bible define what I should hate and what I shouldn't. It says, through your precepts, through your word, through the Bible, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. So the question I asked myself, which I would also ask you, Do you let the Bible define what is good and what is not? Paul talks in Romans. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. What is good and evil? I mean, in this day, there's people calling all kinds of things good that aren't and all kinds of things evil that aren't. So am I letting the word of God dictate to my own life what I should be thinking, saying, responding to? just something that kind of pricked me in the right way this week and I wanted to encourage you with that. Let's let the Bible dictate that kind of stuff. It's too easy to let your own emotions, let my own emotions, my own history, my own past say, well, I don't like that. Why? Is it really biblical that I have this against this certain thing or whatever or is it just my own personality coming out? That was a good reminder. Through your precepts, I get understanding Therefore, I hate every false way. Let's let the Bible define what good and evil are for us. Amen? Amen. This morning, we get to start chapter 3 of Ephesians. And I'm excited for this. And I've been praying and thinking and writing. And I'm ready to go. And I hope you're ready to go with me. So as I was thinking back about, we started Ephesians in September. And we have talked a lot about Paul's theology We've talked about Paul's kind of style in writing. We've looked at other letters that Paul has written to support what he's doing in Ephesians. But one of the things we haven't really done is just to give a really brief kind of biography of Paul. And the reason that this came up now this week is because he kind of does this in the first few verses of chapter 3. In verses 2 and 3, he gives kind of his credentials of sorts or says, if someone were to ask the question, why should we believe you? 
Why should we believe what you're writing to us in this letter? Paul kind of lays out, well, this is why. I received this from the Lord, and I'm, I'm giving it to you. And so as we start today, I want to break our text up just into two pieces. So we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And I want to look at the messenger, this is Paul, and his message. Okay, and the message is this mystery that he's talking about in chapters 2 and 3. So let's read the passage together and then pray and we'll work through it. So if you haven't done so, turn to Ephesians chapter 3 and follow along please as I read starting in verse 1. Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the household, the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let's pray and ask for God's help this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the absolute privilege that it is to study, to think, to read, to have the Bible available to us. And as we are gathered here together, I would ask for your help. You've been faithful through my preparation, and now I ask that you be faithful in the delivery. I pray that each heart here would be opened by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would see what's in your word and be able to apply it to the way we live our lives so that we ultimately live, as Paul said, in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we have been called. And so, God, we need your help. I need your help. And I pray that you'd speak through your word this morning, and I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So as we start the chapter, I want to draw your attention to something that Paul's doing here in verses 2 to 13. He starts the chapter, and we think he's going to start praying, because this is the way he normally starts his prayers. In fact, he'll start when we get down to verse 14. This, he starts the same way. But he takes kind of a diversion, starting in verse 2, and gives, like I said, some of his credentials, some of the reason we should believe what he's writing to us. So he starts in verse 1, he detours verses 2 to 13, and then picks up this prayer again. So I just want you to be aware, even as we go through in maybe a smaller chunk or two, that this is kind of one thought for Paul. So he begins, he detours, he restarts, and then goes on with his prayer. So kind of an interesting way that Paul writes here. Everything from verse 2 to verse 13 is kind of a parenthesis. That doesn't mean it's less significant. It's just Paul kind of starts the thought and then goes 12 or 13 verses and picks it up again. And so just be aware of that as we're going through this. So number one, the first thing we'll look at is the messenger. Let's start in a general sense of who Paul was. Maybe I should have done this right off the bat, but I didn't, so we're doing it now. (laughs) So Paul was born in Tarsus given name of Saul, around 10 AD. And shortly after his birth, he was moved to Jerusalem, where he studied in the tradition of the Jewish people. He tells us this in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, he's in Jerusalem, 
educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the laws of our fathers. Okay, so Paul is educated, brought up in the tradition of the Jewish people, trained to become a Pharisee, which he does become a Pharisee. You can read about that in Philippians 3 or Galatians chapter 1. Paul then, as a Pharisee, tasks himself with persecuting the early church because of the message of salvation through Christ alone, not rules and regulations and tradition and standards. And in the middle of this persecution, he has a dramatic conversion to Christ on the road to Damascus. We read about this in the book of Acts. And through a series of events, the risen Christ calls Paul and commissions him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Apostle means sent one or commissioned one. Paul was sent to be this apostle to the Gentiles. Acts 9, 22, 26, if you want to look into that a little bit more. So God has brought Paul up in this educational system, knowing the law, knowing the Old Testament very well, as all Pharisees did, and God uses that experience that he brought Paul through to be instrumental in the writing of a majority of the letters that we have in our New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of the letters in the New Testament, and many people, myself included, would consider the Apostle Paul to be the foremost authority on matters of Christian faith, doctrine, and practice. All of the theologians, all of the historians, all of the church fathers built their theology on what the Apostle Paul and the other writers of Scripture said. This is what we saw last week when the church, Paul says, is built on what? The foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This is kind of what God was doing in the life of Paul. Now, because of his conversion to Christianity away from Judaism... Paul is persecuted regularly because of his preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. He is imprisoned and tortured, beaten, whipped, stoned, everything because he is preaching the gospel. In fact, he wrote many of his letters from a prison cell or while he was under house arrest, being chained to another soldier. Paul would eventually be martyred for his faith, beheaded under Nero, who was intent on snuffing out Christianity. And praise God that he didn't succeed, but in God's providence, we're here and we're believing as a result of Paul's ministry in a lot of ways. That would have been sometime around 65 to 67 AD. Paul was around 60 years old, 58, 60 years old when he was martyred. So that's a look at Paul in general. Now let's come back to Ephesians 3 and look at some of these things that he includes. So let's just look at the first few verses. Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. There's a few key words and phrases that I think really help us and give insight into what he's talking about here. First, he is a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. What this means is that Paul had been, as I said, commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That was his primary ministry field. And as a result of preaching this gospel and going against the system that he had come out of, he was regularly imprisoned. 
and he wouldn't stop. That's why he kept going back to prison. He could have stopped preaching and he wouldn't have gone to jail. But that wasn't what he was called to. He was called to preach the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. And notice even how he words it. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. You remember from the beginning of the book of Philippians when Paul is talking about these people who are kind of questioning why he's always being imprisoned? And they're saying, well, he's, he's preaching the gospel differently. That's why he's getting thrown in, in jail. So Paul's saying, I'm not a prisoner of Caesar. I'm not breaking laws and getting thrown into jail. I'm a prisoner of Christ. He's being imprisoned for faithfulness to the call that God had given him. And I think we see that in the words, prisoner of Christ Jesus. The Gentile readers of Ephesians owe their salvation to the faithfulness of Paul in delivering the message. That's the way God ordained that it happened, that Paul be the one to spread the gospel, to start churches, to go to the areas where no one had gone or had even thought about going to bring the gospel message to these people. If Paul stops preaching, he won't go to jail, but the gospel won't get to the Gentiles in the same way. So Paul remains faithful to his mission, and as a result of that, he gets imprisoned. Next, in verse 2, he says, this is where he kind of takes this deviation in the text, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. One thing we see a lot in Paul's writing is this idea of stewardship. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He talks about it to Timothy. But what comes to mind when we hear the word stewardship? Maybe we think of money, right? We often talk about money in terms of stewardship and kind of how we use it. It, it is an entrustment. It is receiving something that we're supposed to do something with. Remember, Jesus talked about this in the parable of the talents where these different servants were given a certain amount of money and said, keep this for when I come back. And what did Jesus commend? The one who did something with it, not the person who sat on it. So Paul receives this stewardship, this gift, this assignment from God, and rather than sitting on it, he's a faithful steward. And he brings the gospel to the Gentiles. Here's how the Bible dictionary defines how the word is used in the Bible. Okay? A steward was a household servant who managed the household affairs for the head of the family. Managing the family involved delegation, Discipline, encouragement, and accountability to the head of the house. And we certainly see all those things in Paul's ministry. Delegation, he writes to Titus, keep doing what I started doing, but I can't do because I have to go other places. Establish churches, set up elders, he's delegating that. Discipline, I mean, have you read Galatians? I think there's enough said there. And accountability, he's always saying, follow me as I follow Christ. He is a man under authority and yet calling us to follow him. I think we see all of these things in Paul being a good steward. God has called Paul to be this steward of grace, to preach what Paul will call the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. He assumes that the Ephesian believers have heard of this. He said, assuming you've heard of this, I think you can say that because when we read the book of Acts, we see that Paul spent three years in Ephesus. He knew most of these people. He ministered there. He established churches. He assumes they know this about him and about his character. He also says that he assumes they've heard how the mystery was given to Paul. 
We know he wasn't shy about sharing his faith and how he came to know what he knew. And he says, it came to me by revelation. So what he's saying is that this message of salvation, the message of reconciliation, which in our context is primarily what he's been talking about, came to him not by his own uh, thought, not by his intellect, not by something he dreamed up, but by revelation of Jesus Christ himself. This was not an invention of Paul's. This idea that Gentiles and Jews could be brought together to make the one new man that he talked about in chapter 2. This is not a human invention. Paul alludes to this in Galatians 1. In verse 11, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. He says in verse 12, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, this is verse 15, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach the gospel among the Gentiles. God had set Paul apart before he was even born. That's what Galatians 1 says, to preach the gospel. And he received this message by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ spoke this to him. Isn't that amazing? And that's where his authority is coming from. He says he's written briefly about this. You see that in, in our text? The revelation, as I have written briefly, I think he's just referring back to what he's already said. He hinted at this in chapter 1. If you remember uh, verses 7, 8, 9, 10, he talked about how this revelation comes, the redemption that's in Christ. But now he's going to more fully articulate what this revelation is. So that's Paul, okay? This is the messenger who God has appointed to preach this message to the Gentiles. And now let's look at the rest of the text and see more about the message. Number two, the message of Paul. In verse four, he says this. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. What is this? When we read what can we perceive? I think he's just referring to this letter, right? He's saying when you get this letter and read it, you can tell that I have been tasked by God in a unique way to understand and articulate the realities of salvation through Jesus Christ alone and that it is available for not only the Jewish people but for Gentiles as well. There's something else to keep in mind here that I thought was interesting. When Paul says, when you read this, it's not like everybody got a copy. Okay, in the first century... Papyri was what they wrote on. It was very expensive. And to hire a scribe to copy the letter, which would have had to have been done because literacy was so low at the time. Parenthesis statement. This is why the spread of the gospel almost always goes with the spread of literacy. We need to know how to read to be able to understand the Word of God. And this was the point of a lot of the Reformation, was that getting the Bible in the hands of the people that they could read and not just take the word of somebody else. Imagine if none of you could read. And I stood up here and said, God desires of you that you tithe 
80% of your income to the church. And you're like, oh my word, well, we have to obey the priest and that's what the Bible says and I don't know any better. That's what happened. That's why it's so important that we have Bibles. Close parenthesis. And we're back. So when he says, when you read this, I think Paul is referring not to like everybody sitting by their oil lamp and reading it themselves. I think he's referring to the public reading of Scripture. This is what happened when the letters were delivered. They would come by messenger. The church would gather in homes or in businesses or wherever they could, and the letter would be read out loud. This makes more sense, too, of what Paul told Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4, he said, Until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Why? Well, that's how the people knew the Word of God at the time. That was their access to the teaching of the Bible. And I think it'd be really cool at some point, maybe when we have our own facility or we have more flexibility, I would love to have a regular time where we get together and just read the Bible out loud. Wouldn't that be cool? Not study, not dig around, just hear it. Just hear it read. I think that'd be really great. So if anyone wants to volunteer their home for that, see me afterwards. We'll set it up. So Paul is still not ready to tell us what this mystery is. He's a stinker sometimes because he's telling you, I'm going to tell you what this is, and then it's like eight verses later and he finally gets to what he wants to say. So the next verse five, the mystery was not made known to sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to the apostles and prophets. Why didn't God make his plan known earlier? Did you ever wonder this? Why, at the birth of Christ and the subsequent spread through the apostles and all this, why, why then? Why not earlier? Well, the short answer is because the time wasn't right. I get that from two different texts. Galatians 4. Paul says in verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. Born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law. The fullness of time, it was right. Or Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The details and events surrounding the life Death, resurrection of Jesus were not in any way accidental or haphazard. The time was right for Jesus to come. The time was right for the gospel to spread. This was God's plan. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the apostles, the foundation builders would take this gospel to the ends of the world. This is the plan of God. This is why it was not revealed as it now has been. Now, there were foretellings. There were shadows. There were pictures. We see that all over the Old Testament. But it was not revealed with the clarity that it is now in the new covenant promises. God is never late in keeping his promise. Did you know this? Never. Now, he's seldom early according to our perception, but he's never late. When the time is right, God acts. And I'm thankful for that because I'm impatient and I want things now. <laughs> it's not God's ways. 
His ways are right and perfect. And when the time was right, the mystery was revealed. And now, in verse 6, we finally get to the mystery that he's been hinting at now. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Imagine being a Gentile in the first century. Imagine seeing and hearing things that are going on, but not being allowed even close enough to really understand. You were kept at arm's length, even if you wanted to pursue this, or if you had heard testimony of what Jesus had done, or what the apostles were doing. You couldn't get it. And here comes this guy named Paul, suddenly telling you that by faith in Jesus, not only do you have permission but you have access. We talked about that last week. Remember, we just ended chapter 2 with this message that the gospel takes two different peoples and makes them one. It's a message of reconciliation and a message of peace. A message that has effects. Or you could use the word benefit. And here Paul lists three of those effects, three of those benefits. First, Because of this reconciling gospel message, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. As we saw last week, the Gentiles are no longer excluded on the basis of their ethnicity, but they have been brought into the family. They're members of the household of God. So who are they fellow heirs with? The text says they're fellow heirs I think they are fellow heirs with everybody who has faith in Jesus. This is the point of Paul's message, that it it isn't just for one people anymore. It's for those who have faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you were Jewish or Greek or Canadian even. Can you imagine? That is just the message of the gospel, that it does not matter. And when you are brought into the family, you are brought into the family with everybody else who shares the faith of Jesus, not just a select group of people. Everyone who has the faith of Jesus, we are now fellow heirs. Being an heir means that we rightfully will receive everything that our Heavenly Father has for us. Rightfully, we will receive everything that God has. Next, the Gentiles are members of the same body. Paul refers to the church as the body of Christ several times in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 23, three different times in chapter 4, two different times in chapter 5. The body of Christ. And he writes to assure Gentile Christians that they are also members of the same body. Members of this one new man that we saw last week. Now the word that Paul uses, the phrase members of the same body, is one word in Greek. And it is synsoma, from which we get our English word synergy. What does synergy mean? Working together Right? That's one, one way to define that. When, so the, the, the word that Paul uses that's translated members of the same body means that when multiple um, 
individuals or organizations or whatever come together and work towards a common goal, they can accomplish more than they could on their own. So what does that mean for his usage of it here? When we are saved, when we do what he talked about in chapter 1, we hear the gospel of your salvation and believe in him who sent you, who sent Christ, what happens? Well, you're brought into a family, into a church, not just to continue your own individual thing and kind of strive and struggle in your own strength. You're brought into the family so that we can work together and together accomplish more than we could on our own. This is one of the reasons that Grace Bible Church is in the Pillar Network. Because we believe that by partnering with churches who are like-minded, who have the same values, who value the Word of God, who value expository preaching, who value the things that we do, that we can accomplish more together for the spread of the gospel, to disciple Christians, to go out and impact our world. We can accomplish more together than we can apart. That's what Paul means when he uses this word, members of one body. Together, being brought into the family means that we will be more spiritually productive than alone. I'll let you draw whatever conclusion you want about the importance of being in a church. But I'll kind of give you a hint and say it's really, it's really important. It's really important. Not just for you but for your effectiveness to others and to the spread of the gospel. Third, and lastly, it's the third benefit or effect. The Gentiles are partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. What's a promise? If someone says, I promise to be there tomorrow at two o'clock, what do they mean? Well, they mean that as much as they can, they're going to fulfill that word and they're going to do what they say, right? And that's exactly what it means. A promise is an assurance of a particular thing happening. The word promise appears 36 times in the New Testament. And it is usually talking about the things that God has foretold will come to pass. There's a few times it's used in other ways. Uh, Jesus talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit coming, which is something God foretold. Paul personifies the word promise in Romans 9 when he says, but the promise said, then he quotes from Genesis, but most of all, promise is used in the New Testament as a way of telling us God has guaranteed that this will happen. Hebrews talks about God swearing an oath and how there was no one greater than God to swear by, so he swears by himself. Do you remember this? We'll get to that, the guys who are doing Hebrews. But when God makes a promise, we know that he keeps it. It's also called his faithfulness. When I talk about faithfulness of God, I mean his 100% track record of keeping his promises. That's what I think of when I think of Faithfulness. So, how is the word promise being used here in Ephesians chapter 3? What does Paul mean when he says that the Gentiles are now partakers of the promise? He doesn't say promise says, he says partakers of the promise. 
What does he mean? I do think he has two things in mind. Even though he didn't use plural, I think we can say two things, and probably more. First, I think he has in mind the promised indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This was something only available to those who had faith in Jesus. We know that from other places in Scripture, Romans 8 in specific, that everyone who has Christ has the Spirit. This was foretold in the Old Testament really clearly. And also, Paul talked about this earlier in Ephesians. Remember the end of chapter 1? He said, in him also, I I referenced this before, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God had promised that the Spirit would come and indwell the people of God. Not come and go, but be there. Oikos, dwelling, home, make his home among us. It's one of the things that Paul is talking about. And of course, the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 37, Joel chapter 2, all talk about the promise of the Holy Spirit coming and doing the work of regeneration, taking out our hard hearts and putting in a heart of flesh so that we're receptive to God's word. So that's one thing I think he has in mind with promise is the promise Holy Spirit. The other thing, when he says partakers in the promise, I think is everything God had promised in the Old Testament related to salvation. Everything God had promised in the Old Testament related to salvation. We already saw this when we looked at chapter 2. That no longer are the Gentiles held at arm's length as they had been forever. But now, because of the blood of Jesus, we saw in 2.13, they've been brought near. They can participate. They're not just observing from the outside. They are participating in the promises that God has made. But we still haven't really defined what that promise is exactly. We have some, we have some help. We kind of know what it is. Let me take you to one more place. And I, this was really helpful for me. I said that the word appears 36 times in the New Testament. The last time it's used is in John's writing in 1 John chapter 2. It's the last time the word shows up. And here's what John says in 1 John 2. This is verse 25. And this is the promise he made to us. Eternal life. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good summary, I think, of what Paul is speaking of even here in Ephesians. When Paul says the Gentiles are now partakers in this promise through the gospel, he means that now in Christ, you and I, even though we are Gentiles, most of us, are partakers of eternal life. We're not excluded. The promise is not that as a Christian, you're going to have a really comfortable life, or you're going to be really financially successful, or you're going to discover the real you, whatever that means. The promise uh, that we have, the promise that we now partake in through the gospel is that our sins are forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus is granted to us, and we have the promise of everlasting life, not in punishment, but in paradise. This is the promise he made to us, eternal life. Don't make the promise into something it was never intended to be. Don't look at this and say, oh, cool, now we're partakers of this promise. I think I know what that is. Uh Uh-uh. 
Don't twist that into something that is self-serving. It's true, we are recipients of God's grace and salvation, but salvation isn't ultimately about us. It's about the glory, the worth, the splendor of God in his plan of redemption. Don't make the promise what it was never meant to be. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Is it yours? Have you partaken of this promise? Can you say with confidence right now, yes, the promise is mine, Christ is mine, and glory is mine. And if you can't say that, don't leave today until you talk to us. Not that we have the answer, but the Bible has the answer. We want to help you get right with God. That's what the gospel is. That's what this text is about. It's not just learning about Paul. It's not just seeing some historical things that happen. What does it do to us? It tells us that there's hope. It tells us that we can come and be partakers of the promise that God made and have confidence in Him. This is the promise, eternal life. You remember the end of our scripture reading this morning from Psalm 16? In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Don't you want that to be your future? You can have it through faith in Jesus right now. pray as we come to the table. Father, your promises are true. You have never, ever failed in keeping your word. And so when we come to a text like this and we see that because of what Jesus did, we can be partakers in that promise. It should fill us with joy and hope. And I pray that it does it this morning. As we leave from here in a few moments, I pray that we would be filled and encouraged so that as we now go out and interact with dozens and dozens of different people, Father, that we would act as your children, that we would know that we are heirs of the promise. And that would define us, not everything else around us. Father, thank you for your grace, without which we would be hopelessly lost but you looked upon us with kindness and I'm so thankful. Lord, press your word now deep into my heart, into the heart of these brothers and sisters that are here and will we be strengthened through the knowledge of your word. I pray in your name, amen.